Hello everyone and welcome to Radically Normal. I'm Andre and I'm here with Michael on today's episode, titled Resurrected King, we'll be talking about the resurrection of the Messiah. Hope you guys enjoy this episode. So we just ran some hill sprints and I think I exhausted Andre to his limit. Not to the limit, but I'm definitely exhausted. We also worked out before, which didn't help with the whole hill sprint thing, but it was a it was a fun time and, and now we're going to be able to get started and, and have a, a few other things checked off of the daily schedule you know but <laughs> i told michael i'd have some questions for him for today's episode and he doesn't know what the, what what either one of them is but for the first one it's a they're both a surprise by the way so for the first one we recorded several episodes during the summer months and always drank hot coffee now we're in the winter months and for the first time we're gonna have some cold coffee some iced coffee how do you feel about that michael i love cold coffee i do not like coffee with ice in it that much so i typically get starbucks's nitro cold brew or in today's case in which they were out of nitro i just got a cold brew but with no ice and i will say that that was a great decision because my drink pretty much just tastes like a nitro but andre got ice and he is regretting that decision yeah because it's it's pretty it's not super cold outside but it's pretty cold outside we should probably switch it up and do the the cold drink during the summer and the hot drink during the winter but you know that's just me where, well, one thing I'll say is when we're at my house, we can only really make hot coffee, which is normally what we drink. And then second is I typically get warm recording, so I like to have a glass of ice water or a cold coffee to record. Yeah, well, anyway, I hope you're looking forward to the second surprise question. But besides that, I'd probably jump into Mark chapter 16. We're super excited. Like Michael said, we did some hill sprints today. And, you know, this season has really been a metaphorical hill sprint because we had about three times as much content. And we weren't really in the same location for a majority of it. But now that we're almost done, it feels really good to be done with the season. Much like it feels really good to be done with Hill Sprint. So are you saying you're just glad it's over? I'm saying you, you feel the pain during it, but there's the reward at the end of that of that nice uh, feeling of completion, you know? That's a, that's a, well, that's Andre's corny attempt at a nice metaphor or analogy. I will say that even during the, the season, it has been very... Uh, tiring or a lot of work but it has been very rewarding even in the moment just to you know study each week to get to do a lot of the interviews uh just has been has been incredible and so today we come to in continuity with last chapter just the climax of jesus's story that he was crucified on the cross and today we get to cover how he rose from the dead uh, and Andre, one real quick before you just start us off jumping into the first couple of verses of Mark 16, I just want to say that we do kind of hold to the view that the first eight verses were uh, are what Mark originally wrote. And then most Bibles, uh, if you pick up yours, will have some brackets before the start of verse 9 and say some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 9 through 20. Uh, and so, like they're saying, in a lot of the key early manuscripts we have of Mark's Gospel or the New Testament, uh, these uh, these last 12 verses are not in the manuscripts, and also there's a lot of new words and structures for Mark that would be included there, so there's a lot of reasons to think uh, why that these why these are not part of Mark's original writing, and additionally, they may have been added later since the other three gospel accounts have resurrection appearances by Jesus, but Mark does not include that. We'll probably discuss those, I guess, a little, like, touch on them a little bit. Uh, I mean, they are there, and then uh, we'll probably spend the majority of the time on the first eight verses and talk about you know the resurrection uh more broadly uh before moving into that you know second section but let's go ahead and 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 jump in and so kind of where we left off last time was with the crucifixion uh kind of a longer episode but it was really fun to record that one i think it was one of our one of my favorite episodes of the season 
Yeah, it's really good. So in the first few verses, Mary and some women are there. Mary is recorded in all four Gospels, I'm pretty sure, as having been present uh, to see the tomb or the empty tomb. They go to do ritualistic things. They go to anoint him. That's to honor somebody who's died. And then in verse two, on the first day of the week, so the Sabbath was the end of the week on Saturday. And so Sunday began the week. And so they go to the tomb and they are anxious about who's going to roll away the stone for us so they can get to Jesus. But before they can even stress out about that too much, they see that it's been rolled back. And then they're afraid but an angel, and there's actually two angels present in John's account and in Luke's account, but an angel or multiple angels tell them to not be alarmed. So they're told to look at the tomb and then to go and tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before them or before you to Galilee and you will see him there. And so like we said before, Mark does not include resurrection appearances, which is why they might have, which is why later writers might have added the, uh, the last 12 verses, 9 through 20. But here we do see that this is our Easter episode. This is uh, the resurrection of Jesus and they're meeting uh, the angel and God. They are meeting the stress of the women who's going to roll away the stone and they're meeting and the angels meeting their fear. Like I said, there's two angels in uh, John and in Luke. And there's also some noteworthy things in John's story that are not here in uh, Mark's story. So John 20 is John the Apostle's account of the resurrection in uh, verse 19, we see that the doors were locked where the disciples were hiding for fear of the Jews. So prior to the resurrection, we see that the disciples are completely in fear. But after Jesus has appeared to them, what happens? Acts preach, or Acts. In Acts 2, Peter preaches the Pentecost sermon where thousands come to faith and they are no longer afraid, but they are boldly, per- they are boldly sharing the gospel and they're persecuted and killed for their faith. So the resurrection changes something. But I want to go back to Andre's hill sprint. In John's account, it's not a hill sprint, but there's a sprint. John records in verse 4 that both John and Peter, both of them, Peter went out with the other disciple, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And the other disciple is John. So John outran Peter, and so John and Peter had a little sprint of their own on the way to the empty tomb. I guess you'd be John and I'd be Peter then because you out-sprinted me today. <laughs> but I think it's it's really interesting that you know, it, it was Mary along with these other women who who make the decision and go f- figure out what's what's going on. They want to go anoint Jesus. They they know that that he is um, obviously they, they saw him die. Um, the disciples are like amongst this like same understanding. But you know, these women are not done with the situation. They want to go and anoint him. They want to go and continue to honor Jesus. Um, and like Michael said, the other disciples are are you know disbelieving. They're scared. Um, they're a little more cautious in this situation. I think that's super interesting, um, especially because, you know, the angel specifically tells them to go and tell the disciples. Uh, we know that the disciples have a crucial role in, in what is to come in Acts and beyond in the rest of the, the, the New Testament, as Michael was pointing out to. And um, another thing that I want to point out, and which will be my, my second question to you, Michael, uh, has to do with the resurrection um, specifically. Um, as I was like looking into resurrection ideas and, and, and thinking really about, you know, other people who earlier in other gospel accounts, Jesus, you know, brought back from the dead. How is this different? And, you know, what I saw overwhelmingly in, in many commentaries was, you know, this resurrection was different because Jesus was resurrected in, into, um, you know, this perfect right with God. Um, imperishable. Yeah, imperishable um, body where we know he then... Um, ascended to heaven uh, to sit at the right hand of the Father. Um, but, 
you know, we know that he actually like walked on, on the earth and, you know, showed himself to many people, um, saw the disciples, you know, all that good stuff. So my question is, you know, how, you know, we see that Jesus kept his body, like the physical appearance of it. People could like tell that it was Jesus. So once, you know, we go to heaven, do we keep our actual physical body? It's interesting for me to think about, you know, we obviously age a lot, like while we're here on earth, but do we, you know, keep that physical body? And I don't know if there's anything that you have for that, but I thought it was an interesting question. Yeah, it's a good question. It's a hard question. And it's just interesting to think about. So I, one of the big questions is when the saints are resurrected in the last days, I think of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, if the resurrection didn't happen, then we of all people are most to be pitied because the faith hinges on the resurrection. If Jesus' body is still in a tomb in the Middle East, then none of this means anything. We, there's no reason to trust Jesus' words. There's no reason to, there is no Christianity without this resurrection. And so when we are resurrected, because Paul writes about how we are going to be raised from the dead one day, that all saints, all believers and unbelievers, but all will be raised uh, to judgment, some to some to eternal life and some to what you could say is eternal uh, death or condemnation. But in that resurrection, there are many questions. You know, what what kind of body is that? What are like are we 12 are we 30 are we 60 like what but unfortunately for us we are rebuked by the scripture because in verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15 Paul says but someone will ask how are the dead raised with what kind of body do they come next verse Paul says you foolish person what you sow does not come to life unless it dies so Paul's saying we're not to ask and then in verse 38 but God gives it a body as he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. And he speaks how we're going to get a heavenly body that is glorified. So it is clear that we get an imperishable body that we're raised to life everlasting. And it's completely different from this because in new heaven and new earth, what does Revelation 21 say? That there's no, uh, there's no death, there's no tears, there's no sin. That's all wiped away. And so we know that the body is going to be immortal and imperishable. But as for the details, Paul tells us that those aren't questions that apparently we're supposed to ask. So I don't know if that really addressed your question. But one thing I will say on top of that is you said how Jesus' resurrection was different. Because when Lazarus was raised in John 11, I think, Lazarus ends up dying again. But Jesus is raised from the dead and doesn't die. Elijah raises the widow's son in 1 Kings, but that son ends up dying again. And so there are different types of resurrection. And Jesus' resurrection points to the one that we will experience uh, one day. What is interesting, though, is in Jesus' resurrection, you can see that he was crucified. Thomas sees his pierced side. Uh, in Revelation 5, we see that Jesus is a slaughtered lamb, yet he's standing as the roaring lion who can open the scroll. So it's clear that G you can see that Jesus was the slaughtered lamb, and at the same time, he has the imperishable body. That might have been a long answer, but I hope it answered something. No, that was really good. And, you know, bringing it back to the resurrection, you know, like as... Michael was saying like, this is, you know, super important to us being able to experience that same resurrection. One day we see that Jesus conquers death. Um, we see that as we talked about in the previous episode, it was supposed to be a shameful death, a crucifixion, you know, it turns out being Jesus crown of glory. You know, we see that, you know, he is able to overcome death um, and, you know, pay the price of, of all of our sins so that we can all be right with God. So, I think that, you know, there's kind of a good transition to talking more on the resurrection. If you have any more points on that and then touch on the last 12 verses that, you know, we alluded to at the beginning. Well, I think one thing that's interesting is how we often think about or we've talked about in the last chapter in 15 about how if you're planning your crucifixion and resurrection story, you're trying to make it sound truthful. 
women aren't your first go-to point. And so Tim Keller in his book on Mark, he talks about how uh, Celsus, a Greek philosopher from the second century, talked about how when, or he wrote arguments against Christianity. And one of his main arguments was that the accounts of the resurrection are based primarily on the testimony of women and women are hysterical and in, in Keller's words of what Celsus would have been saying. And so even early on in the second century, an objection to Christianity was you can't trust the testimony of women. So if you're crafting and making up this story, this is not how you ground your argument. And so this is another pointer, as we've said previously, to the veracity of, of the story. So if you were making up your own story to try to make the resurrection appear true to readers, you would probably make men the people that testify to it, or you would make, or you would just make up a different story altogether. But if you were going to make up a story that would appear to be true, you it would certainly not be the testimony of women in the first century. And so that points us to it's the truthfulness or the veracity of the event because it tells us that that Mark isn't crafting up a story; he's telling us as it truly happened. I think it's also interesting to think about how you know more so during you know these times you know women didn't really have such a large place in you know really anything and you know we see here with the story of Jesus how women are, are really like in a, a central place you know we see uh, look I guess looking to the like later verses like 9 through 20 we, you know and also in the accounts of the other gospels which Michael has already talked about a little bit how the other disciples you know they didn't seem to really be believing that you know this resurrection story had actually happened uh, the women are the ones who hear from the two angels. The women are the ones who go and tell the disciples. Um, and we know that the disciples play a super crucial role in the sp- spreading of the of the gospel. But in this situation, kind of like in a sense, you know, turning their back from God and ki- from Jesus kind of in a way. But I think it's it's really cool how, you know, women play a central part, especially like how the times of the culture were um, when, you know, when Jesus was uh, crucified and resurrected. Yeah, that's really good. And so the what's interesting is is what the women do because the the angel or angels tell them to tell the disciples and you will see Jesus as he told you because Jesus said I will rise on the third day. And Paul tells us that he appeared to a lot of people in his time uh, when he was risen before he ascended. But it's interesting how it ends. They went out and fled from the tomb. They were trembling. They were astonished and they were afraid. And so the gospel ends kind of with a question mark if this is the end. Why are they trembling and why are they afraid? And so I pulled a resource in uh, in our interview with Dr. Russell Moore. He mentioned a new book by Michael Card and who wrote about this ending. And I really liked what Card had to say. Card said, this is really, this is a great quote from his new book. But Card said, the literary mastery of this ending is that it leaves us standing with the women outside the vacant tomb as well. We are forced to cope with the situation exactly as they were. We're forced to believe without seeing the body. We are compelled to trust Jesus' promise without any proof. That was Mark's contribution to the early church, to draw them into the drama of the moment as no other gospel writer in the decades to follow would do. It was risky and brilliant, and he needs to be deeply appreciated for the literary genius that he was. So what Card is saying, end quote, what Card is saying is that this is a masterful ending to the gospel because just as they're astonished and they're afraid and then they're in this drama of life having to deal with what is a truth claim on Mark's behalf about Jesus resurrecting, 
we have to do the same thing that the women are doing. We're in their place. And so Mark puts his readers in the place of the women. And that is just a masterful uh, exposition or explanation of what's going on here. And I think that's a, a great conclusion or a great wrapping thought for why Mark concludes his gospel so differently from Matthew, Luke, or John. And then, you know, those next like 12 verses, like although not in the you know earliest manuscript or whatever, still like speak uh of things that you know are seen still in the other gospels you know we've talked about several of the instances where um you know we know that you know these several of these things are you know talked about in very similar ways in the other gospels so still would be valuable to at least touch on them since they are you know included it as part of mark and then you know as we wrap up this uh chapter and then as well as you know this um book of the bible so let's jump right into that i guess at this point so looking at uh, verse 9, we see that the women, Mary Magdalene specifically, is singled out here. She won and told the disciples. We know that we see the disciples were mourning. They, they were crying. It says that they were that they wept. This was you know specifically talked about, as Michael said, in, in the other Gospels. Um, and we see their disbelief here, um, which is, you know, super interesting that, you know, they don't believe it. You know, despite the fact that they're crying and mourning and uh, really you know, distraught that their Messiah was killed, you know, they don't really believe that he has resurrected. I would think that, uh, you know, with how much sadness that they're experiencing, that they would, you know, be super, you know, happier, um, want to believe that, you know, the best has come true and that he has resurrected. But despite knowing that Jesus had told them the plan, you know, he told them like, you know, um, after three days, um, you know, he, he told them that, you know, he was going to restore the temple. He was speaking of his own body. I think that he, he gave them all of the information they needed to have, and they still chose to have this disbelief. It kind of like goes back to what we've kind of talked about this whole season, how the disciples really weren't getting uh, many of the parables. They weren't understanding what Jesus was saying. They kind of chose to not believe and chose to not really like the plan that was that God had set before, before them and, and that Jesus was explaining to them throughout this whole entire time. You know, I've been reading about how it's easier to see in the Greek how this is just so distinct from Mark's actual writing. But even in the English, I do just feel like it has a different a different spin or different style. But you just look at how they're afraid, they have hardness of heart as Andre's talking about. But then randomly, the Lord Jesus uh, sp- speaks to them in verse 19. He was taken up into heaven. And then in verse 20, they went out and preached everywhere. So there's not a lot of flow to the story. There's not a lot of uh, seeing how they come to faith. Whereas if you think of like Luke going into Acts, Jesus ascends and then the spirit comes down on the people and then Peter and the rest of the apostles proclaim the gospel to all nations. And so I do think that that's a distinction. But like Andre said, there's a lot of continuity with other gospels. You think of verse 15, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. By the way, this is not saying baptism is necessary for salvation. That would be a logical fallacy. It's just saying because the next quote is whoever does not believe will be condemned. So belief is this the centerfold piece for justification. But this is just like the Great Commission: go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the baptizing them in the name of the Holy uh, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just like in Matthew twenty eight. So Yandre, just like you said, there's there's a lot of continuity with other gospels as well. And then in verses 17 to the end, we kind of see that uh, Jesus tells them that they're going to, you know, have the ability to perform these signs as they go and spread the gospel. Um, we probably won't get into the specifics of much of that, but, you know, we see that the same miracles that Jesus was able to accomplish and, and, and did to and performed 
as he was going through his ministries in the book of Mark, we see that the disciples will now receive the ability to do perform those same signs and, and perform those same miracles as they go and spread the gospel to others. So I think that that's uh, super cool that they're going to have the ability to do that. And we see that, you know, this is a part of the Great Commission here as, you know, Jesus tells them that you're going to have these signs as you go and spread the gospel to others. Yeah, so right after the resurrection, we know, especially from other gospel accounts uh, where, you know, Matthew wrote the whole thing or Luke did or John did, and then going into Luke's uh, second book, the book of Acts, we know that there are appearances of Jesus with the dis- with the disciples. He's walking with the people and he teaches them about how the Old Testament all pointed to him. Or in John, he eats breakfast with them at the fire beside the sea. And so, and then we see in Luke and in Acts that he ascends to heaven and then Pentecost appears where uh, the Holy Spirit descends on people. And so no longer is Christ here in bodily form, but the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit is now indwelling uh, the, the apostles, and then all the way into today's age, the Holy Spirit is here, which Jesus tells us is to our advantage, uh, as we talked about in our interview with uh, Dr. Schreiner, which was an amazing uh, interview, an amazing conversation. And so now uh, we know that Jesus is interceding on our behalf. So a lot of people have a lot of questions, you know, Jesus resurrected. Well, is he doing anything now? And it's important to recognize Uh, that he is, that right now uh, Jesus is still at work on his people's behalf. And so in uh, Dane Ortland's new book, Gentle and Lowly, he talks about Christ is interceding on our behalf before the Father. And so it's a reflection of the fullness and victory and completeness of his earthly work. The atonement accomplished our salvation. Intercession is the moment-by-moment application of that atoning work. In the present, Jesus talks about what he then did. And so what Jesus is up to now is in continuity with what he did on the cross and in his resurrection. And so even now, Jesus is interceding on our behalf in heaven. And I think that was like one of the biggest takeaways of, you know, when we had our episodes in our interview about, um, you know, the ascension of Christ uh, with Dr. Schreiner and how, you know, that point of, of how Christ is interceding on our behalf now up in heaven to the Father, you know, how it just, you know, really touching and how, you know, just great that is to think about and meditate on and, and how thankful we should be for that. And how when Jesus says that, you know, it is better for us to have the spirit here. And, you know, a big part of that is the fact that he ascended and he is interceding on our behalf is also even better for us. Um, and I think that, you know, like you said, a lot of the other gospels touch on these other aspects of, you know, Pentecost, um, the ascension, uh, more so than here in the book of Mark. But as we had talked about, the book of Mark you know, focuses on the crucifixion as we talked about, you know, the, the point of, of the title for this season that we had, um, thinking on the crucifixion and the resurrection, I guess it'd be valid to, uh, kind of go back to that and not, you know, belabor these last few verses as much. Um, but, uh, I mean, <laughs> but if you, if you have any points, you know, more so to, uh, the re- resurrection from, from this chapter, I think that, um, you know, to tie it all in, uh, to how, you know, the crucifixion, and the resurrection, how crucial that is to, um, our salvation, um, how our King uh, conquered death, and how you know we look forward to uh, one day His return. Uh, if you have like any points, uh, ad- ad- in addition to th- to the ones I just made of of how we should focus more so on the resurrection and, and on a greater scale, like how how much that should mean to us uh, and to the gospel. Yeah, I mean that's so good. So like you already said, we we kind of talked a bit about what the crucifixion accomplished, Jesus satisfying God's justice and wrath towards sin, and uh, him defeating the works of the devil uh, on the cross. And second, we see now in the resurrection, as you just said, there are many things that the resurrection accomplished that 
people don't usually think about. It's kind of like, oh, Jesus rose from the dead, so God's powerful, and then we kind of move on past Easter. But there's a lot of specific things the scripture says that uh, the resurrection accomplishes. In 1 Peter 1, Peter writes that, We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. So our new birth in Jesus only occurs because of the resurrection. Second, his work on the cross is confirmed as it's accomplished through the resurrection. So in Romans 4, Paul writes that it will be counted righteousness to us who believe in him, God, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So us being made right with God is centered upon not just Jesus's atoning work with his blood spilt on the cross, but also his rising from the dead. And lastly, in sanctification, how we live today, it's not just a past event, we're saved, but also how we are living today, our ethics and our morality and our serving in the church. Romans 6, just two chapters later, Paul writes, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And so now today, because of the resurrection, we are dead to sin and we have risen with Christ. Think about baptism. You have been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. Uh, It's like what people typically say around a time of baptism. And so we have been raised with Christ and are now alive to God. And so the resurrection uh, affects our salvation and our ongoing living today. That's really good, man. And you know, I've just really enjoyed recording this season and going through the book of Mark. And I think there's so much to take out of that. And I think that it was really great that, you know, some of the interviews and other additional topics that were incorporated into this season kind of touched on many of the other um, aspects of, for example, the Ascension or, you know, other pieces from the other Gospels, which are super great to study and look at in their in their own right. But uh, thinking to Mark, I think that this was a really great book and to really focus on how uh, Jesus was crucified, how the cross was, you know, his coronation. Uh, you know, we know that what was to be supposed to be shameful, you know, Christ turned into something that is, you know, the most beautiful, the greatest thing that could have ever happened to all of us as believers. And, um, you know, we get to have a really good picture of how what Christ did on the cross is what allows us to be have our salvation. And, and we know that we are now looking forward to one day, um, like we talked about in the Advent season in one of our episodes for this week, Meet the Cross, I think, about how, you know, we're looking forward to when Jesus comes again and we can have that everlasting peace and um, perfect harmony. So I really enjoyed this season. I don't know if you have any last thoughts on the book of Mark before we wrap up this episode and, 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 this, and this great book. My only thought is Mark's emphasis. You can't know the Son of God unless you see him on the cross. That the, as Jeremy Treat said, and as we've alluded to before, the king of the world, Christ, is the king who's crucified. Jesus is the crucified king. And uh, with that, we wrap up this season in Mark. So thanks for joining us and join us on Thursday for our Q&A. Uh, and then we will close up this season. And so thanks for tagging along with us. 